morning. Are you sitting beside somebody you like? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. We're going to dig in here this morning, and then, so it'll make sure that you're liking the person you're sitting beside. You can move around if you need to, just a little bit, but like I said, we started last week a series that we're calling Open Your Eyes, and we started looking at this passage in Isaiah chapter 58. So get your Bibles, go to Isaiah 58, or you can also follow along on the screen. We're going to start here in verse 1. I'm going to read it to you out of the message paraphrase, and it says this. Shout a full-throated shout, hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lies, face my family Jacob with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side, but they also complain, why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do you, we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line of your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after, a day to show off humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, and the lights will turn on, and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices and quit blaming victims, Quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shattered lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life, the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundation from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your step on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you rise high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. This is the chapter that we're going through in this series. And I came across this statistic this last week that said that 7,000 churches in America close every year. 7,000 churches. Can you imagine? It's incredibly sad, isn't it? And it's caused me to have this question inside of me that's just kind of been burning inside of me this past week, and that is, what would happen if our church closed? What would happen? What would happen if this church closed its doors? Now, before you freak out, we're not closing our doors. 
God is doing an amazing thing here, I think, in our midst, and we've seen so much of God moving in this past year, and so we're nowhere close to shutting down or slowing down. That's not at all what I'm talking about, but what if we were forced to close our doors? I mean, what would happen? Would anybody notice? Would anybody care? Would we be missed? Would it matter? I mean, think about that just a little bit, because are we just a country club, and if the country club closes its doors. The only one that really misses it are just its members. Is that who we are as a church? I mean, I think you and I, we would miss it if this church closed this door, if we were forced to close this door. This is an amazing church. And like I said, God's been doing extraordinary things this past year and a half. And so I know I would miss it. I love being your pastor. And I think you love coming here to church. And so I think we would miss it if these doors were forced shut. But would anybody else? I wonder, would anybody else notice, the people who live in the Spicewood area, would they even care? The people who live over in Briarcliff, would they even care? The people who live in Bee Cave and Lakeway, would, would they even care? Would anybody notice if our doors were permanently shut, if we didn't exist anymore? Last week, I was, we started talking about the tendency, how easy it is for us to look at the gospel, the good news, and to see what Jesus did just from the perspective of this get-out-of-hell card for me personally. It's just so easy to make this all about me, 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 and what I can get out of this. But listen, folks, if it's just salvation and the forgiveness of sins, our own sins, if that's all that we think that God is interested in doing in our lives in the world today, if that's what we think, then we're going to miss out on all that God intended with bringing his kingdom here on this earth and what he was intended to do here on this earth. Last week, I showed you my Bible that I had cut out all of these verses. There's 2,000 verses here that have to do with poverty and oppression and justice and what Jesus later would describe as the least of these. Over 2,000 verses. Think about that. Over 2,000 verses. And when you cut that out of your Bible, when you cut all these verses out of your Bible, you're left, you're left with a Bible that's full of holes that's tattered in areas that it barely even holds together. And I think this has become, I said this last week, I think this has become our American Bible. This is how we kind of look at life. This is how we kind of interact with God, minus all of these verses, all the verses that have to do with poverty and injustice and oppression and what Jesus would later describe as the least of these. We've taken all of that. We've taken all the references to others out of our Bibles, and we tend to focus just what's about me, what, what's in it here for me. But I said this last week, that the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to preach and to teach, is intended to change and to challenge everything everything in our world here today. When the disciples were asking Jesus how to pray, Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, On earth as it is in heaven. See, folks, the kingdom of God is not something that's just for the future. It's not just something for when you get up in heaven. The kingdom of God is intended to change and to challenge everything in our world right here, right now. And so the kingdom of God is not meant for it to be a way for us to escape planet Earth. It's not meant for us to leave this world. The kingdom of God is the means to actually redeem this world. That's what Jesus came to teach and to preach. Look at this in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. 
Like a six verse eight, it says, but he's already made it plain how to live, what to do. What God is looking for in men and women, it's quite simple. Do what's fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. I love that last part. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't put all the tension on yourself. Take God seriously in what he is doing. Listen, folks, there is more. There is more that God has for you. Do you know that? There's more that God has for you than just coming here on a Sunday and you're getting your batteries recharged and then going out into the work week and into the world in some way, somehow, just managing to get by through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, just so you can get back here on Sunday and get your batteries recharged and then repeat it all over again. There's more that God has for us. There's more that God has for us than just getting our lives healed and your hearts set free. As amazing as that is and as as, as incredibly awesome that God does that, he loves to set us free. He loves to heal our hearts. As amazing that that is, God still has a whole world out there that he wants us to reach. Go back to Isaiah 58, verse 6. It says, this is the kind of fast day I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace to free the oppressed, to cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, sharing the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. See, God's heart is for the oppressed and for the marginalized, for the poor and for the down and out, those that Jesus would later describe as the least of these. This is the heart of God, and these are the things that break God's heart heart. And here's the connection for every one of us, because if we focus on these things, if we focus on the things that are centered to God's heart, look at, our, look at the connection here in Isaiah 58 verse 9. It says, then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. Your lies will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lies will be bathed in sunlight. I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones, You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, to rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, to restore old ruins, to rebuild and renovate, to make the community livable again. Verse 14, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. Do you see the connection? Do you see the connection he's making here? Because if we go after the things that are on God's heart, then we then in turn get the benefits that God has for us. But so many times I think we get it upside down. We get it turned all around because we make it all just about me. It's all about me, 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 and what I can get out of this. But God says if you do that, if you keep your focus on you, you're going to miss out. Because God's focus is on the least of these. And if you'll put your focus on the least of these, God says, I'll take care of your needs as well. Listen, folks, nothing we do to love God means anything unless we love our neighbors as ourselves. Nothing that we do here at church or to worship, to study scripture means anything unless we love our neighbors as ourselves. The Apostle John said it this way. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but yet hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so what does that mean for you? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? Because it's interesting, the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks very specifically to seven different churches. And in these seven churches, he speaks to them and tells them what they're doing right where they're hitting it on the mark, and where they're missing it. And so I wonder, what would Jesus say to you? What would Jesus say to me? What would Jesus say to us as a church, One Chapel Lake Travis, corporately as a a church in this Lake Travis area? What would he speak to the churches? Well, there's a verse in the New Testament that I just can't get away from it. And for those of you who've gone through Catalyst, you'll remember this verse, because in Catalyst 1, this is our very first memory scripture that we do. It's 1 John 2, 6. It's up here on the screen. Can we just say this scripture out loud together? Say this with me. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Say it one more time. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now listen to what he's describing here. Because if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then we then need to live our lives like Jesus did. Did you hear me? If we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, then we need to live our lives like Jesus did, not like your parents did, not like your neighbors do, not like the Smiths or the Joneses do, but we are to live our lives like Jesus did. When I was a kid, there was a game that we used to play, and I was about 10 years 10 year old, and, and we used to play this with a bunch of my friends on our bikes, and we would ride around in the neighborhood and in the city, and, and one of the things that we would do is that as a, as a group of kids is that we would ride our bikes down a road, and when we came to an intersection or fork in the road, we would stop, and then we would take out a coin, woo, and then we would flip the coin, And if it was heads at that intersection, we would turn right. And if it was tails, we would turn left. And every time we came to an intersection, we would flip the coin. And whatever the coin said, that is what we did. And as a 10-year-old, this was a pretty great adventure. We got into trouble a little bit times because it took us areas we probably shouldn't have gone. But it was a fun, it was just a fun little game that we would do as kids. But the rule was, is that at that intersection, we had to flip the coin and whatever the coin said, that is exactly what we were supposed to do. Well, think about that because as followers of Jesus, we're basically supposed to do the very same thing. Because at every intersection in your life, at every point of decision, we're supposed to stop, not flip a coin and say, right or left, but we're to stop and to ask Jesus, ask God, what would Jesus do, and then do it. At every intersection, at every point of decision, we're to stop and ask God, what would Jesus do, then do exactly that. Whoever claims to live in him must walk, must live, must make decisions as Jesus did. And so again, at every point of intersection, at every point of decision that you face, we're to stop. Don't just assume. Don't just go all the way through. Don't just do it on your own understanding, but to stop, ask the question as Susan and Wayne talked about, listen. Listen to what God would say. What would Jesus do? And then do that very same thing. And much like my game as a 10-year-old, this is when life gets thrilling. 
This is when your life becomes exciting. This is when the adventure comes. And yes, it's going to take you out of your comfort zone. Yes, it may make you feel uneasy. But at the same time, it will put you on the greatest adventure of your life. Because you're following God. Not just you and what you think you should do, but you're actually following God. So let me ask you a question here this morning. And that is, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Come on, turn to your neighbor and ask your neighbor that question. Look at your neighbor and ask your neighbor, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Now, the essence of this question, the essence of this question was asked, by Jesus to a young, professional, successful man in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Look at this. It says, Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now I want you to look at the story, and I want you to maybe insert yourself into this situation, because maybe you can see yourself in this man, because he was young and he was prosperous, he was successful at all the things that he did, he was morally upright, he was held in esteem by his peers. And by his community, he was a faithful person. He faithfully went to church. He faithfully gave. He, he tithed on his income. And he followed all the commandments of Moses. So here was this man who people would point to and say, this is how you do it. And so here's this man. And, and I kind of imagine this, this rich young ruler coming to Jesus looking for that kind of affirmation, looking for that pat on the back, looking for that attaboy. You know how we do that? You know, when you feel like you, you're, you're doing something good, you kind of fish for that affirmation, you kind of fish for that compliment, because you feel like you've done a good job, you just want somebody else to hear it. But I think that's exactly what this guy was doing. He was, he was, he was thinking he was living his life well, and so he was, had this expectation that Jesus would put his arms around him and then speak to the crowd and say, hey, everybody, look at this man. He's doing it right. This is what it looks like to be one of my followers. I think this is what his expectations were. But Jesus' reply to him was pretty disappointing. Look at this in verse 17. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So it wasn't quite the answer that he was looking. Again, he was looking for this affirmation. So it wasn't quite the answer that this young man was looking for. And so he tried to pin Jesus down just a little bit more, and he asked in verse 18, which ones? And then Jesus' reply was actually kind of conventional. Verse 19, do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony on your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. At this point, the man must be thinking pretty good of himself, because these were the things that he had done. This is exactly the affirmation that he was looking for. He'd been faithful with the commandments of Moses, and so here it was. Here was the time where he would be able to get that affirmation from Jesus and being, being held up um, by Jesus to all the people that were around, around him. And so in verse 20, he says, all these I have kept, the young man said. In other words, he was saying, come on, Jesus, check me out. Look at my reputation. Ask my friends. Call my rabbi. And you'll hear the same thing. These are the things that I have done my entire life. I've got all these bases covered. Now, to me, this is where I think the young man should have stopped. You know, he should have just stopped there because all is good in his world. And he should have just um, looked at Jesus, said, thank you, shook his, his, his hand, and then walked away. This is what the man should have done. But oh, no, that's not what he did. He continued to push just a little bit further. In verse 20, he says, what do I still lack? 
In other words, come on, Rabbi, I've done all of these things. Give me a, give me a, a harder test to take here. And then this is when Jesus nailed him, verse 21. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now, I want you to try to put yourself again in this man's position because this man, he thought he was doing really, really, really good. He thought everything was great in his life. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. I think this man, all of a sudden, he had to be thinking, you've got to be kidding, Jesus. You can't be serious about this. Surely you don't mean everything. Maybe you're just talking about figuratively, right? Now, you don't literally mean to sell everything I have. I mean, I'm, incredibly, I'm an incredibly successful man. I have obligations. I have a family responsibility. I can't sell everything I have. That would be irresponsible. Maybe I can just write a bigger check to the poor. But yet, Jesus' words still hung in the air. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. It was devastating. It was devastating because Jesus looked into this man's soul and diagnosed the condition of his heart. The parts of us that we kind of want to ignore, the parts of us that we, we want to show off and we, we want to let everybody know that we're doing okay, but Jesus went right to the inner side of what was going on, the conflict that was going on in his heart, because on the outside, this man was doing really, really good. He was doing all the right things, but on, this, on the inside, his heart was divided. His possessions and his positions were competing with God for supremacy, he hadn't completely sold out. He hadn't completely surrendered his life fully to the Lord. His status and his stuff had become idols in his life. And the most troubling part of all of this is the very next verse from Matthew's account, verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. In other words, he couldn't do it. At that point of decision, at that point of intersection, he couldn't surrender everything to Jesus. And so he turned his back on Jesus and he walked away. And so let me ask you the question again. Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? Now, how many of you are Lord of the Ring fans? Anybody out there? Hobbit fans out there? I, I'm a big one. Two hands up. When I was in high school, I read all the books and The Hobbit and... Twin Towers and Lord of the Rings, all of those. I read all of those. And, and one of the things I, and when the movies came out, I, I, just, I loved it all because I love J.R. Tolkien as an author because he uses these allegories as spiritual connotations. He was a preacher in the early 1900s and he was a contemporary and a friend of C.S. Lewis. And so his stories are these allegories of these spiritual connotations. And one of the main allegories in the story of the Lord of the Rings is this issue of ring, this ring, this ring of power. And this ring in the story has to be destroyed because if it falls into the wrong hands, then evil will dominate Middle Earth. And so it lands into the hands of this unassuming hobbit by the name of Frodo. And Frodo has the responsibility now of, of taking that ring and making sure that it gets destroyed. 
But little by little, the deceptive power of this ring begins to control him and to the point where this ring becomes so precious to him that he has a hard time getting it destroyed. So I have some clips from this movie here. Yes, it's church. We're going to watch a little bit of Lord of the Rings here this morning. Just a couple of minutes here. Why don't you draw your attention to the screens? Watch this. Bilbo's ring. He's gone to stay with the elves. He's left you back end. Along with all his possessions. The ring is yours now. Put it somewhere out of sight. It's the ring, isn't it? It's getting heavier. That's it. That's all you got to watch. <laughs> but can you see the metaphor here? He's using the, this ring as this allegory of things that can come into our lives that become so controlling and so precious to us, and that there are things in our lives that can actually possess us. And for us as followers of Jesus Christ, anything that becomes more precious to us than our relationship with the Lord will ultimately destroy us. And just like this ring that's described here, 
um, in the books and in the movie, these things are often seen as beautiful and shiny on the surface. In other words, they're good, they're positive in our lives. It may be your career advancement, it may be a growing bank account, it may be your goals in retirement, maybe your hopes and dreams, it may be your relationships and your family or your, your, your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, maybe with your, with your kids or your grandkids. The reality is these things may be indeed good, but they can become stumbling blocks if they begin to possess us or they, or they divide our heart and compromise our commitment to the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. See, Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is what Jesus described. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And so are you open to God's will for your life? Now, here's the thing. It's only when you consider this question, when you truly consider this question, that you're going to realize how precious these other things in your life have become. It's only when you seriously consider this question are you going to realize how controlling these other things in your life have become. It's only when you come to those points of intersection in your life and God tells you to go right that all of a sudden you're confronted with all the things that are going to keep you from going right. You're going to discover what's really going on in your heart. In the book, The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf has this, this conversation with Frodo and about the dangers of, of having this ring and on, on this journey that he has to go on. And he warns Frodo of this great power that the ring has and, and that it can possess the person who carries. Well, Frodo, he's young, he's innocent, and he, he's really skeptical about all this because after all, it's just a ring. It's just a ring. How can a ring be evil? How can a ring control him? And so as a test, Gandalf tells Frodo to give up the ring, to throw that ring into the fire, to destroy it. And this is how the book describes it. Try, said Gandalf, try now. Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket again and looked at it. The gold looked very fair and pure, and Frodo thought how rich and beautiful was its color, how perfect was its roundness. It was an admirable thing and altogether precious. When he took it out, he had intended to fling it from him into the very hottest part of the fire. But he found now that he could not do so, not without a great struggle. He weighed the ring in his hand, hesitating and forcing himself to remember all that Gandalf had told him. And then with an effort of will, he made a movement, as if to cast it away. But he found that he had put it back in his pocket. Gandalf laughed grimly. You see? It's a perfect description, isn't it? Because this is exactly what was going on with that rich young ruler. He had gotten so enticed and attached to his identity and his status that when Jesus said, let it go, give it to the poor, sell all of those things, he couldn't do it. At that point of intersection, at that point of decision, what was revealed was really what was going on inside of his heart. You know, folks, that's exactly how it is with you and with me. It may not be status. It may not be money. But it may be your career. It may be your, your habits or your lifestyles or your relationship. The reality is it's probably different for every one of us here in the room today. But this ring, this ring that's on your finger, it's been there for a long time. And you've gotten used to it. You become comfortable with that ring, whatever that is. You've gotten used to it. And the reality is you like it. And so Jesus comes to us in those points of intersection and he says, go and 
dot, dot, dot. For the rich young ruler, it was go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. That may not be what he says specifically to you, but Jesus does come to us and says, go and dot, dot, dot. There are things that when we come to those point of intersection where it reveals what's really going on on the inside of us, and it becomes easier said than done, right? I said this last week that I think this series is going to take us on a journey for us. And I'm hoping that you'll stick with me over these next several weeks to do this journey together. If you missed a session, I encourage you to listen online because I think there's so much about this gospel, the gospel that Jesus came to bring, to teach and to preach, to demonstrate for us. There's so much of it that's just become about me, about me, what I can get out of this. And our focus just becomes about us. And as a result, we've forgotten the bigger world that's on God's heart. We've reduced everything to our little worlds, and we've forgotten that there's a whole bigger world out there that God wants us to reach. And so I think it starts with a prayer. It starts with a prayer. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. I think that's where it starts for every one of us. Because we accumulate all these different things that, like I said, we intentionally or unintentionally, we cut out these 2,000 verses that are in the scripture. And all that we leave are things that just, of what I can get out of this. And as a result, the gospel has holes in it. And we're missing out on so much more that God wants to do in and through our lives. And so I think it starts with, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Now, let me just tell you, it's a dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer because you're giving God permission now to search inside of you just a little bit. God, what is that one thing I still lack? God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Listen, folks, there's so much more that God wants to do in and through your life. And I said this last week that I'm not completely sure all that God has in store for us. I feel like I have more questions than answers as I lead this series here for you. But the one thing I do know the one thing I do know is that it starts here. It starts with surrender. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. That's where it starts. God, I don't know all the things that are going on inside of me. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? If you would, I want you to just close your eyes, if you would, please. I don't want you to think about anybody else. Don't make this message about anybody else. Just make it about you. And what God might want to speak to you here this morning. And right where you are, I want you to just begin to ask God. Just begin to ask God, what are the things that I'm holding onto tightly? What are the things that have begun to possess me? What are those things that have become so precious to me? What are those things that are consuming me? What are those things that are controlling me? Just ask God that. And whatever he just brings to mind immediately, because I think how the Holy Spirit works, he just brings things to mind immediately. If you would, I want to just ask you just to picture whatever that thing is, whatever those things are, just picture putting it in your hands. It may be a worry. It may be a concern. It may be all these thoughts that you have. It may be your future. It may be a relationship. 
It may be your hopes and dreams. It may be something really, really good, but yet it's just gotten too big in your life. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit just revealed to you, just picture putting that in your hands in front of you. I want to just ask you, just put your hands in front of you with your palms open as if you had something in your hands. Just picture what it is that God just spoke into your heart right now. What might be because become that's precious to you. And I want you to just pray this after me. Let's just pray this all together. Just say this after me. Say, God, I realize that I'm not always aware of the things that I'm holding onto tightly. I'm not always aware of the things that have become so precious to me. And so today, I'm asking that you would expose all of those things that are dividing my heart, that are compromising my commitment to you. Today, I'm making a decision to surrender everything to you. Help me to get my focus off of me. God, I want to be willing to be open to your will for my life. And so today, I'm deciding that I'm willing to be willing. And I'm willing to be willing where I realize that deep down inside, I may not be really willing. <laughs> but God, today, I decide I'm willing to be made willing. I let go. I surrender all. I surrender all of these things to you. I let go. I let go of control. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart in Jesus' name. If you would, I want to just ask you to stand up. If you would, please. And just put your hands now open. Let go what it is that you are holding just right where you're standing. Just put your hands out. Not holding onto it tightly anymore. And just, you name it. You know those things that maybe God revealed to you. You know what it is that maybe is consuming you, controlling you, possessing you, being so precious to you, that's dividing your heart, that's causing this compromise in your commitment with the Lord. But maybe right here, right now, just release those things specifically to Him by name. God, I let go of that and just release it to Him. Father, I pray for everyone here, every man and every woman, every old person and young person alike. The Father right here, God, as we are in this journey with you, that God, these layers of egocentric gospel that we've created, this American-centered gospel that we've created and formed around this relationship with you, God, I pray for every one of us that you would begin to strip that off, layer by layer. God, we, we realize that so much of this we're completely unaware of. This is just how we've done it. This is just how we live. And we're unaware of the things that are really going on inside of us. And so, God, we're asking, search our hearts and know our thoughts. Try us in all of our ways and see where there is wickedness, division inside of us. 
oh God, and lead us to that life everlasting, creating us a clean heart, oh God, and a pure, right spirit before you. God, I thank you that you're not done with us yet, that you don't cast us away, that you don't treat us the way we deserve. But God, you run to us right where we are. And so, Father, I pray that for every person here, that you would just grab a hold of them, even when we want to turn our backs on you, that, God, that you would just grab a hold of us and say, come on, we can do this, that you wouldn't let us go. You wouldn't let us walk away, God, but you would grab us in your embrace of love and say, come on, we can do this. That, God, you would do that inside of every one of us, that there would be this newness in our relationship with you, that we could experience you and know you in a new way. That, God, we truly can be lights in this world. That, God, that we can make a difference in the spheres of influence that you put us in. And so, God, we're praying, God, break our hearts for the things that break your heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. We'll have people down front that are here. We do this every single week. We have people that are here to pray with you. Whatever you're going through, I say this every week, that God never intended for you to do this by yourself. You don't need to carry this by yourself. You don't have to try to walk this life by yourself. Don't keep it inside of you. Let somebody stand beside you, agree with you, pray with you. So these men and women are here to do that for you and with you. They'll stick around here for as long as necessary. Please don't leave here this morning with things still heavy on your heart. Let me just speak a blessing over you this morning as we leave. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and now give you peace. God bless you, everyone. Have a great week. Glow for the Lord this week. We'll see you next week.